Well, uh, good morning. It's a great joy to be with you and looking at God's Word together. Lovely to see you, especially if you're new or visiting today. Uh, It's always a joy to see different faces around. Today we're going to be finishing the Sermon on the Mount with the verses you've just heard read to you, which is part of a wider series on how did Jesus train people to follow him? What did he do with his first believers to equip them to go out and do the mission that he had for them, which we'll get onto by the time we get to Matthew chapter 10 in April. Uh, So we're about a third of the way through his training regime now as we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And there's much for us to look at this morning. So let's pray for real wisdom and for hearts to be still before the Lord now. Father, without your help, we cannot hear your word. So we pray that the Holy Spirit, the author indeed of these words, would come into each heart now, each mind now, and give us revelation and understanding about what your son Jesus meant when he first said them. Please, Holy Spirit, come among us now, be present, and do your amazing work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to begin this sermon where it probably should begin, right at the end. Uh, I'm going to begin with the wise and foolish builders. Now, if you lived around the Sea of Galilee in the first century and you had observed the seasons for a while, you would know that come the summertime, the alluvial sands on the shore of the Galilee get rather hard and in place. And if you look at them carefully, they look like they've become rock-like. And you might think, ah, well, that looks like a lovely spot for a second home or for my first home. I could just imagine a chalet on the Sea of Galilee. I'd just rock out of bed, fall off the veranda, get into the dinghy, put the fishing rod out, catch a fish, sun myself, and just relax with a barbie uh, till the end of the day. Have a few friends over, open a bud. Uh, Maybe they didn't do that in the first century. Open a a bottle of vino um, wherever, and uh, vino calais, and, uh, and enjoy myself. And you might think you'd been rather good when you got your Ikea build-a-house thing out, put it out, and it's all ready within just a few weeks. (laughs) But we know, don't we, that this is rather more like the story of the three little pigs. Uh, Anyone told that story recently? Little pig, little pig, let me come in. Not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. And we've got the three pigs, the one who's built their, their straw house, the one who's built their wooden house, and the one who built deep and built foundations and had a, a solid house and was able to eat a wolf for their dinner, depending how graphic you make the story when you're telling it later on. <laughs> I prefer the graphic ones. Now, what we know if you're at the Sea of Galilee then is that this alluvial sand that seems to be a reasonable rock to build on is actually pretty temporary. Because when it comes to the rainy season, the mighty River Jordan fills up very quickly. And the floodplains all sort of echo into it. It comes down into the Sea of Galilee and the rain's coming down at the same time. And the water levels of that sea go up rather fast, almost like in one go, as the river floods in. And the sea builds up and what seemed to be solid ground becomes shaky grounds. And the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. And your relaxing holiday destination falls around you with a great crash. (laughs) End of Jesus' sermon. What an extraordinary sermon. What was the point of that illustration? Well, the point of the illustration is that a wise man will build his house on rock. What is uh, the rock? He says the rock is 
Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. My words, this sermon if you like, my words are a rock to build your life on and to put into practice. If you've been following this series, you'll you'll notice a few things then. One is that this sermon is not therefore an illustration of how bad you are and that you cannot make the grades. It can't just be that. Oftentimes when we preach this, we'd say, this is a sermon that backs you into a corner. I've never committed adultery, but I've been lustful. I've never murdered anyone, but I've hated my brother. I've not kept my word on every occasion. I'm coming back to sit next to Ruth in the corner here. Hello. Um, and I'm backed into a corner and I'm guilty. It can't be that, can it? Because he wants you to put it into practice. He doesn't want you to just grovel around in guilt going, I'm rubbish. He wants you to put it into practice. Nor then can this sermon, as we've said before, be a sermon that's just designed to take you to the cross and to let you go, ah, I'm rubbish, but I need grace. And grace will come in and flood into my life and give me a nice warm cuddle and everything will be all right because I've got grace and I've got Jesus. And I'm just going to live the way I always do. But I've got grace now and I'll come to church and repent every other week or so um, and get back with God. It's not that either, is it? As we've said before, this is the third sort of sermon. It's mission possible, not mission impossible. It's saying this is a way to live your life by. And there is power to live your life by this, as we've already seen. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. I.e., if you want to live this way, you can't do it on your own. It's not good counsel for the general public out there. This is a way to live your life that requires an infusion of God's grace and mercy and help. But if you trust in him, if you hunger for the right thing, he will equip you and enable you to put these words into practice. You say, well, how do I put them into practice? Well, if you were building your house near the Sea of Galilee and you wanted to put it into practice, you would know that to get your foundations right, you have to build them 10 feet under, (laughs) 10 feet deep. Now, that's a lot of digging, isn't it? That's not, I just went on an alpha course, said a prayer, <laughs> came to church every other week for the rest of my life. Ten feet of digging is a spiritual disciplines, it's hungering and thirsting after God, it's studying his word, it's putting them into practice, it's going deeper again and again. If you want to build your life on Jesus' words, it's going to require an extraordinary amount of effort, he's saying. Watch out. This is going to cost you. But if you build on my words properly and solidly and with foundations, it's going to last forever. doesn't matter what storms of life come along. doesn't matter whether you're facing death or illness or poverty or redundancy or relationship issues. Whatever it may be, if you've built on me, it's a strong enough foundation to last. You see, but it requires 10 foot of digging <laughs> to build that deeply. And there will be various things along the way that can put you off your path. And this is where we come to the earlier verses in our passage, verses 13 through 23 of chapter 7. What will put you off your path? Well, back in the 1660s, a man was in prison in our country. Just at the end of the Civil War, he'd been on the wrong side of the Civil War. The king was now in post, and the Church of England was again reigning supreme, and the nonconformists were in a lot of trouble. And one of these nonconformist preachers was preaching without a license from a bishop, because he didn't believe in the things. 
And he was preaching the gospel of Jesus, and it upset various authorities. And the authorities put him in prison. And during his time in prison, he had, as he explains in the introduction to his book, a series of dreams. And he wrote those dreams down into something that became a book that went through 1,300 editions over the next 250 years. The second most uh, published book in the English language up until a few decades ago. The man had the name of Bunyan, John Bunyan, and the book was called The Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress, if you don't know it, is an expanded reflection on the verses that we've got before us today. In the story, a man uh, becomes a pilgrim because he hears the gospel of Jesus. He hears the words of the Sermon on the Mount. He hears about Jesus. And as he hears Jesus' standards, he is, in fact, backed into that corner. And something like a huge burden appears on his back as he realizes that his level of morality does not equate to the level of morality that God requires of him. He can't make the great, and he feels a weight of burden on his shoulders, and he's stuck. He doesn't know what to do. He understands that he is guilty, that he's not right before God, and he's desperate to escape this trouble. Finally, he encounters a man by the name of Evangelist who tells him of a narrow gate that he can walk through. If he follows the path of light, he can get to a narrow gate. And he sets out on a journey towards a narrow gate to try and find a way to get rid of this burden of realizing he doesn't make the grade. Two characters from the village go after him quickly. One's called Obstinate and the other's called Pliable. And they try to stop him. Obstinate argues and Pliable listens, as you could imagine from his name. And Pliable ends up going along with this young traveler Christian along his journey. But before long, they come to a place called the Slough of Despond. And the Slough of Despond is really is the, the off-cut of all of the realizing that you're sinful. It's that sort of wallowing around in guilt and despondency and going, I can't do this, I'm rubbish, I'm terrible. And many a traveler gets caught in the Slough of Despond going, there's no hope for me, I'm worse than you are, I'm worse than they are, I'll never be as good as these religious types. And they get caught in the Slough. And that's what happens to Pliable. He looks at the slough and turns back. A man comes and helps Christian out of the slough of despond and explains to him that this is the place of fear when sins are exposed and sets him off again on his journey towards the narrow gate. Now, it's not long before he meets another character. This character's called Worldly Wiseman. Worldly Wiseman puts the pilgrim off. He warns him that there will be suffering and death if he follows this path towards Jesus Christ. Instead, he says, why not go to the town of morality? You might think of the Church of England. Why not go to the town of morality instead? There your burdens will come off as you go through various rituals and you try and live the way that Jesus told you to, just in your own strength. And my friend, legality will be there to help you along the way with his legalistic rules. Fortunately for the pilgrim, evangelism stops him at this point and tells him, look, the just will only live by faith, i.e. the only way you will get right with God is by trusting in him, not by your morality or your legalism. But if any person draws back from that quest to find God, the scripture says, my heart will have no pleasure in them. Eventually, dear young Christian makes it to the gates 
the small narrow gate, which is manned by a man called Goodwill. Goodwill sees him and realizes that he wants to go through the gate and almost yanks him through the gate to the other side. He says, look over there. There's a tower, and in the tower there are people firing darts, fiery darts, trying to just get you before you come through this gate. Let me help you through, and he pulls him through. And I just wonder if there's anyone here today who's sort of on the edge of that gate, and there are arrows coming your way, trying to stop you from entering through that narrow gate into the way of life with your burden, and you just need someone to pull you through. (laughs) If you're in need of someone to pull you through this morning, why not hear the words of this talk? As a pulling, as a yanking, saying, come on, come on through to the other side. Don't delay, because there may be an arrow just coming your way that you need to escape from. Christian goes through the gate, and he goes to the great interpreter's house. And there he gets the truths that he needs. Maybe in our day, that's a bit like going to one of our small groups, our midweek small groups. There are 12 of them now you can go to, or one of our Alpha Course tables, and hearing about the truth a bit more. And as he understands the truth from the great interpreter, he understands that there's a cross that he can go to. And he goes and kneels at the cross where once someone hung in his place and died in agony for his sins. And as he kneels down with that big burden on his back and sees the cross and repents and cries out for forgiveness and says, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong, the burden falls off his back and rolls down the hill and then disappears. And an angelic figure comes and appears to him, dresses him in brand new clothes, tells him that his sins are gone and that he has become a whole new creature, a whole new creation. He sets out along his way in this beautiful new clothing, a new creature, no burden on his back anymore. And he meets various people on the way. He meets people who have fallen asleep on the way. He meets people who are trying to get onto the path from another way via a shortcut, but these don't work. They walk the easy way, trying to avoid the hard, straight path up the mountain, and they go on the side routes of destruction and danger, a little like you or I might do if we were walking in the fell countries or in the Lake District, trying to get round, but not realizing unwittingly that we're going to our doom. The Christian keeps on a narrow path. It's a lonely walk at times. He drops the scroll with the words of life on them and has to go back. He risks life and limb when he sees there are beasts ahead of him on the journey. Uh, But he carries on. And he realizes then that the beasts were there to test whether he was still going to keep going. Maybe there are beasts ahead of you on the path right now. They're chained up, actually. They can't get you if you stay on the narrow path. But the beasts look scary. And they might cause you to want to turn back. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's your heart's condition. Maybe it's your physical condition. Something in you just going, oh, just turn back. This is too tough. But he carries on through. After he's got past those beasts, he meets the sort of the anti-sirens, three wonderful women called Discretion, Prudence, and Charity. They teach him about the armor of God. And with the armor on, he goes to fight the devil and goes through the valley of the shadow of death triumphant. He gains a companion called Faithful. And they go to a town called Vanity Fair. And you might read West London for Vanity Fair. (laughs) Where all the pursuits that can entice a heart away from God are available to anyone who will have them. (laughs) 
anything your heart desires. But faithful and Christian as they go through West London, as they go through Vanity Fair, are not allured by these pursuits. And that irritates the people around them. (laughs) Because these pursuits don't cling to them. And eventually they put them in stocks and throw rotten fruit and vegetables at them. And the character Faithful is even burned to death. And we read about him being taken to heaven in a chariot. (laughs) Christian escapes, goes on his path, encounters various things like giant despair on the way to Doubt Castle. And shepherds who show him what to do. There's slumber and distractions. And he even has to fight against what turns out to be a demonic character, but who's disguised as an angel. Telling him, there, there, there's a better way, there's an easier way. God doesn't want you to go that difficult path. Just go this nice, easy way and you'll be fine forever. (laughs) Touch the screen and give me your money. (laughs) Finally, he crosses through the river of death into Zion. And in the promised land, gains everlasting life. Has a party, has jubilance and joy. And we read in the sequel that his wife carries on on the journey after him with the children. And they follow suit after he's crossed already to the promised land. Jesus in verse 13 says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. It's the sort of gate you can get through with your friends in one go. (laughs) It's not the single file narrow gate. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few will find it. Only a few will stay on the path. And when you're on the path, my dear beloved disciples that he's just training. This is sort of first year university with Jesus. Watch out for false prophets. They'll come to you in sheep's clothing and inwardly they're ferocious wolves. You'll recognize them how? By, by what their, their life adds up to. Sometimes you'll realize that that grapes don't grow on thorn bushes and figs don't grow from thistles. Don't hang out with people who say they can tell you about God, but their lives are just in turmoil. There's anger and malice close to their heart. That every good tree will bear good fruit and every bad tree will bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Another way that you'll understand who these people are is that sometimes they get cut down and thrown into the fire. You might have been following someone and then you realize, crikey, they've fallen utterly away from God. He's taken his hand of mercy away from them. They've been exposed as a false teacher or prophet or leader in some way or another. But others you won't get to see that of. There'll be others who pound on the door of heaven and say, I healed people. I did miracles. I drove away demons in your name. And he'll say, I didn't even know you. Go away from me, you evildoer. It's a perilous journey, isn't it, that he's describing to these young believers. Paul says it when he leaves Ephesus. He says, after me, there'll be ferocious wolves coming to devour you. One should be very careful when one chooses a vicar (laughs) in a church. First thing to check is not um, whether they've got a young family or any family at all, whether they're male or female. 
but what their life and doctrine is. <laughs> Will they teach the truth? Will they live the life? And please pray for us that we stay on the path with God. It's not an easy path. But you see, if you build on my words, you're wise. A wise builder and it lasts forever. I wonder where you find yourself on the journey today towards God. I wonder if you'd really rather the Sermon on the Mount have finished after the Beatitudes. (laughs) And near the beginning of chapter 5, before the bit about blessed are you when you're persecuted. When it still looks like Jesus is just that nice teacher with just a few platitudes to say that might encourage people along their predetermined lives. I wonder if you'd rather the tame Jesus who you could just have say the things you'd like him to say. Maybe you'd like to teach that Jesus in your small group or your alpha table. (laughs) This sort of really tame, nice Jesus who wouldn't say boo to a goose. Jesus quite deliberately doesn't leave us that option in this sermon. He backs us into a corner and says, there's two ways to live, really. (laughs) You build on rock or you build on sand. You build on me or you build foolishly. He says that among the clergy, if you like, among the religious leaders, among the bishops, among the Jewish leaders, among all denominational ministers, Of all ages, there'll be those who choose to draw you away from the way of the cross. How are you going to decide what's right and wrong? Have you built those foundations? But if you persevere, there's life everlasting. And it's worth it. It's so worth it. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he was good looking, because he told some funny stories. <laughs> because he had a good mix of points and illustrations and knew how to use short, precise sentences. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And it stood out like a sore thumb in that age. He knew what he was talking about. Have you ever been in one of those lectures, maybe a university, where the lecturer had obviously just read up on it that morning before he got up to to speak? I'm told by my academic friends that happens quite regularly. (laughs) And just occasionally it's exposed, isn't it? But here Jesus is talking about not something he's just read up on that morning, but something that he knows thoroughly through his heart that he establishes the authority for. When they heard him, he had authority. Today, Scripture says he has far more authority because he is now crucified, resurrected, ascended, and seated at the hand of the Father. And when he says something now, it comes with pounding authority down through the ages. And one day, he will judge all the living and the dead. And one day, every knee will bow before him and every tongue, one day, will confess, you are the Lord. All people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, the scripture tells us. Jesus could not put it much more plainly than this. There is a choice to make. There's a choice to make. Do you want to follow me or would you rather follow someone else? (laughs) 
You can build what looks like you're following me, but if it's on sand, it's not going to last. That's the irritatingly divisive gospel (laughs) that he's left us with. And I know that for some of us, this leaves us on the wrong side of the argument at the moment. It leaves us on the wrong side of the thin and narrow gate. And it doesn't give me any joy to, to speak into that because it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because if you're on the wrong side of the narrow gate, <laughs> according to Christ, you're on the wrong side. And there's a broad way which many people are on. And it leads to destruction. And as Bunyan said, there are people there just waiting to yank you through. But there isn't a a neutral place. (laughs) There isn't a place where you can do a medley of Buddhism, Catholicism, Bible. (laughs) There isn't a place where you can get your New Age crystals out or your Kantian philosophy out. Or just chuck some comedy into the mix to hide. It's a me or against me message that Christ brings. And really, it's up to you to decide. I don't know how to help you decide. I could tell you what it's meant in my life. Many people here could tell you what it's meant in their lives. If I was St. Paul, I'd be in tears begging you. (laughs) to change and maybe I should be there is not one more important thing you will ever decide to do in your life than put your hands in Jesus' hand and walk through that gate to that cross and cling to him for mercy it's far more important than what you do for your A-levels it's way more important than your degree is beyond pale into consideration in terms of who you marry or your career. Will you trust in him? That's really all it boils down to. Will you go my way? As we come to communion, I'd love to invite you to treat this as a narrow gate. Maybe you need to come back to him today. You've gone off the path. You've been in a slough of despond. You need to come back to him. And maybe you've never been to him ever before. Why not treat this communion table today as a place of response? Are you going to go my way? May God bless your deliberations and thinking. In Jesus' name, amen.